smoking section. Here we are for another episode of season four. Uh, we have a Grammy-nominated artist, writer. We have a badass writer who has written for the likes of Miranda Lambert, Keith Urban, Darius Rucker, the band Perry, Casey Mumphreys. The list goes on. We have here Brandy Clark, ladies and gentlemen. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time out of your day. Uh, we've been trying to make this happen for a little while, so I'm appreciative, appreciative of you taking the time to make this happen. Uh, so I want to start off with who you are and what you, where you come from. So, um, because that's how we start all our interviews off of. So you were from a little town, I call them podunk towns, um, <laughs> in Morton, Washington. <laughs> Population 900 at the time. Has it grown since then? I would say it's probably about the same. I always tell people it's anywhere from 900 to 1200, depending on the economy. You know, at one point there were several mills. I want to say there were four mills going on. Um, I, I think there's may, there are maybe two now. I can't, I'm, I haven't been back in a while, so I probably shouldn't comment on that. But yeah, based on the economy, the school goes up or down. I think it's in a low point. You know, I think the, the school's a lot smaller than it was when I was there. So there are probably less than 900 people now. Wow. How many people did you graduate high school with? 52. Wow. Yeah. I can't... Marcus, at the time, it was the biggest class to ever graduate from Morton High School. Really? Yeah, I don't know. The class before me had 25, just to put it in perspective. I So, okay, so it doubled. So I've never, um, I don't think I've ever been in any graduating class that had so little, so few students in it. Mm-hmm. I, grew up, I grew up in a city, so my classes were like, I think my high school graduation class was like 775 kids. Yeah. So it's a it's, big, big difference. You, your, your class was our town. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So you moved to Nashville in 1998, right? Yeah. You were going to school, you were going to be a student at Belmont for, for the music business. Um, so obviously the lifestyle is different in small town world than a big city. So how did you adjust to that? Was it, did you have a culture shock? Was that your first visit to Nashville? Well, I had visited one time. I moved here in August and I visited in April. Mm-hmm. It's just a real quick visit. I remember going to, my best friend and I flew out and, you know, we, we went to Belmont, like we went and walked around the campus and it was very different. I remember there was a dirt track um, at that time. Yeah, and um, we went to the Opry. You know, we did that kind of that kind of stuff. I'm not a great planner, so we probably could have done a lot more if I were a better planner. But, you know, we rented a car and, and did, did a few things, and then I moved in August, and it was like, it was, I felt like I had moved to New York City. That's how different it felt to me. Now, you know, I had, it wasn't like I hadn't ever been to big cities. My parents were great about showing us, you know, keeping us cultured. We went to Seattle a lot. We did a lot of things that, that I, a lot of people don't get to do. My parents were really into exposing us to all kinds of different, you know, sports and music and, you know, anything they could. So it wasn't like I hadn't been to the big city, but it was my first time of really like driving in the city. And so this is what I did. I always knew if I could see the Bell South Tower, I was okay. If I couldn't see the Bell South Tower, I got a little scared. That was that was how <laughs> around Nashville. You know, because it's Gosh. Nashville's kind of on a circle. So I would know on those interstates, okay, if I don't see the Bell South Tower, I need to turn around. I'm getting out of my comfort zone. Wow, that's great. It's funny how many people who have, have said that about that building. 
for those people who don't know, the Bell South Tower is now the AT&T building. It is the Batman building, as we call it, uh, in the middle of downtown Nashville. It's in the skyline. It's the infamous skyline. Um, that's amazing because that's actually how that's actually how I got around town for the longest time as well. <laughs> And also what people don't know now because it's grown so much is at that time it was the building that stood out. Right. And and it's crazy because now it's not the building. Now we have cranes. (laughs) (laughs) That's so true. So, okay. So you went there for, you went to Belmont for music business. You, you came to town. So what was, did you, did you, were you and your friends like going out and, what was it? What was the downtown scene like? Because I feel like the downtown scene then is is totally different than what it is now. It is, and it was. And you're asking great questions. Uh, things that I've forgotten about. I went out a lot when I first moved here, and I didn't have any friends at first. You know, I didn't know anybody, so I went out a lot by myself. And when I think about it, here I was, this 21, 22 year old girl going to Printer's Alley all by myself yeah. because. I was just trying to find music. And so, you know, in my Nashville dream, it was all down on Broadway. And so I would just go down, you know, and I'm not a goer outer, you know, I'm not that person, but I was then just to find music. And so, you know, I'd go to Tootsie's or um, I always loved Legends right next to Tootsie's. I'd go in there and I'd just listen to music for hours and I'd walk up to Printer's Alley and I remember somebody got stabbed up there and and thinking, maybe this isn't where I should be going all by myself. Uh, so, did you go to the karaoke bars in Printer's Alley? Was that still, is that around? I'm sure it was. I didn't go to those. I do remember, I, you know what I remember is thinking, this is a rough, I do, even before somebody got stabbed, like, this is rough. And in my mind, the players were paid in drinks. I remember, like, the players, <laughs> I'm sure I got and sang with a house band or two down there. But then I, um, one of the luckier breaks for me was, um, my first roommate in Nashville was on the business side of things. And she was definitely like, Hey, let's get you, you need to make a demo tape. I remember that. And I didn't have any money. And she's like, okay, so let's enter, you're going to enter these talent competitions and we'll make enough money for a demo tape. And so I started doing, open my like talent shows at the broken spoke and at the nashville nightlife and i remember i won the nashville nightlife and it was like 250 dollars and the broken spoke i remember i won 50 dollars because i had 300 dollars and we had found the place where i could make a demo for 300 dollars wow and yeah and it was a guy who did um he had an airstream trailer and he had his recording rig set up in there and then in his house he had isolated places for everybody to play and so he had the players and i want to say we did three songs we did like two covers and an original and then i started trying to get gigs off of that demo tape and it was a literal tape wow it was a little little cassette tape right (laughs) three hundred dollars three hundred dollars for three songs on a demo that that's uh that ain't how it goes nowadays No. And I don't know if people are still doing talent shows to try to earn the money for them, but if they are, I'm guessing that the prize money is more than it was then. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. So, 
all right, so you so you've you've done all that. You've gone around. You 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 you've basically gotten comfortable in a town that you have only been to one time. You had no friends. Your roommate is is working the business side of things and helping you out. So what? So when when were you? Are you playing writers rounds as well? I was yes. So once I got past that, I didn't do the talent show thing for very long. Right. Once I earned that money, I then stepped into, and I think it was from. I mean, the first the first week I lived here, I went to the Bluebird, and you know, because that was one of the things you oh, did. Right. And um, but then I started doing. There was a the Broken Spoke had great writers nights, so I started doing the Broken Spoke writer nights. And then you had to try out for the Bluebird. And I remember trying out for the Bluebird and making it. And that was a huge feat to get to play there. And so, um, yeah, I just started doing that. And then, you know, you'd meet other writers and they'd ask you to play their writers rounds at Douglas Corner. Or I feel like I the Boardwalk Cafe, which I don't think exists anymore. I don't think that exists anymore. I've heard, I've heard many stories about the Boardwalk Cafe, though. It was over on Nolansville. Yeah. And it- there, I saw really good music there. There were a lot of really good people there. Um, and then, like, there was a place called the Radio Cafe in East Nashville that became Mad Donna's. Oh, um, yeah. And I just played all those. I, I, I played so many writer's nights, open mics. That You know, I'd play several a week. So, um, Bluebird was, so Bluebird was the first place you played. When you think no, but it was it was the first place as far as a write. It was probably Broken Spoke was the first writers round I played. Right, but Bluebird was the first writers sort of show that you had to audition for. Oh, do you still have to audition for those nowadays? I don't know. I remember at the time that I did, they would audition and you played a verse and a chorus of a song. And that was it. And I want to say it was like 60 to 90 people waiting outside the Bluebird and they would choose 30 and then you would get to come play. I think it was Monday night and yeah, yeah. you played, I think, three songs or maybe it was Sunday night. It was Sunday or Monday. I can't remember. But, I, you know, I have to say that in all of my Life, I don't think I've ever been as nervous on stage as that first time I played the Bluebird. Wow. And I would, yeah, and I've, I've been fortunate enough to play some really great stages and great, you know, things. And, but I remember my knees physically shaking. Cause that's like the holy grail in Nashville, Tennessee for songwriters. Yeah, artist, artist is the rhyme and it's the Opry, but the Bluebird, it's the holy grail for. And I would say a, a very close second was the rhyme in the first time I played it, and that was, well, wait a second, I played the rhyme in, when I was at Belmont. I, I had won the songwriter showcase and ended up in the best of the best, and I played the rhyme in. and I was nervous, but I was really nervous the first time I played the Opry. It was at the rhyme in. And so I was nervous then. And I remember being shaky, but not like that Bluebird experience. You know, it was just, I think I had the Bluebird really built up in my mind into something. I mean, it sh- as it should be, really. But I had it built up even bigger. That's great. I was going to ask you, why, why was it so no, no, more nerve-wracking for the Bluebird than it was the Opry and Ryman? Um, that's crazy. Uh, I've heard so many stories of the Bluebird and people in their first time playing the Bluebird. Um, and they're all the, the common thing is that they're so nerve wracking. 
I think, you know, here's what I, I think it's a couple of things. I think they're everybody who's anybody's played the Bluebird. You know, when you think about like guys like Don Schlitz really started it, be, made it what it is. Right. And then I also think the other, like when you play the Ryman or the Opry, you expect to be nervous. The setting makes you nervous. With the Bluebird, I mean, it's a hole in the wall. So it's sneaky. You know, like, and, and I think it's also because it's so intimate. I mean, it's one of the most intimate places you'll ever play. And and it forces everyone, it literally has on the wall, don't talk when everyone's singing. Yes. So it forces everyone to focus on what's happening in front of them and who's playing and who, and listen to what is being said in the song. So I, I think that also takes account to that as well. Yeah, yeah. Pin drop. You can hear a pin drop in there. He literally can. <laughs> he literally can. So it makes a nerve record. So how long after you moved to Nashville, went through went through school, graduated school, how long afterward did you get your pub deal? So I got my first pub deal. I had been been in Nashville five years. Wow, okay. I'm starting to realize that seems to be the common number for everybody. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and I think if you get it sooner, there's some dues you end up paying yeah. later on, you know? And I'm glad I paid them before. Um, like, I know people who, because I had, so I had a deal, and then, you know, I, right away I started getting, which I was fortunate in this, I started getting songs on hold and songs, I had a song recorded really quick that you actually mentioned before we started recording, Things a Mama Don't Know. Um, I got, that song was recorded very quickly in my deal, but the artist who recorded dropped right away. This was before right. And so um, that was, so I had, so I, I started to have things pretty quick and I, and that was good. And it was all steps. Like I started doing demo sessions and then I would get songs on hold, which would mean that an artist would say, please don't play this for anyone else. I want to record it. And they, most times they don't, but then I would get songs recorded and then the songs would fall off records or the records would get shelved. And so I had, you know, a good 15 years in town before I had a hit. And I know other people who have a hit right away and then don't have anything for 10 years. And I think that would be a lot harder. I, I think I would have a lot uh, uh, issue with that as well, because it's like, well, what do I have to do? And I, I've, know, I've noticed that the songwriting waves as well, it's, there's a big, there's a wave. So it's like everyone, if you've had, you can have a string of hits one year and then you don't get another string of hits for another two, three years. Yep. And it just keeps going that way over and over again for the life of a songwriter's career. Yeah, I think you have to just stay consistent in what you do because there are times when when it's quiet and then there are times when it gets hot. And, you know, if you can't, like most people, even the, the people I know who are the most successful, and this would shock people, they still have more failures than successes. They're just swinging at it a lot, you know? That's 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 one way. To look, that's definitely a way to look at it, you know. Um, so let's talk. So your first, you talked about your first, your first uh, cut, mm-hmm. which as we discussed, I've listened to that song multiple times. I even listened to today getting ready for this interview, 
and just real and like I was singing it and I'm like realizing that I knew remembered all the words like 15 year old Marcus was still in his head like all that was still there coming to so I remember that song um that's I was a huge Toby Keith fan he was on that single as well I loved her I I love Micah too I do she's a sweetheart and I met her they 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 went on tour together. Obviously, she was his backup singer, but she also opened for him mm-hmm. on tours. And I think it was during that year, and I met her that year as well. And I have some crazy pictures of me and her making goofy faces. <laughs> He's a great girl. I went out and opened some shows for Toby, and she's so nice. Like she's such a sweetheart. Out of her way to be really nice to me, and she's such a great singer, and just all around good girl. Such a sweetheart. Um, so let's move forward to the big hits, the big artists. Mm-hmm. We all know, and I completely forgot, but we all know you wrote Miranda Lambert's Mama's Broken Heart with Casey Musgraves and Shane McAnally. Yes. Oh my God. So, all right. So this song, when I heard it, my experience of hearing it the first time, it was one of those songs where I listened to it. My friend had played it for me. And I went back and I'm like, can you replay that song? I found myself re- like re-listening to the song, not realizing that I was listening to it again. And so he played it for me again. I'm like, oh, that's a pretty good song. But then it was two days later when I realized I was still singing the song in my head. Oh, I love that. <laughs> That. What was the mentality? What was the mindset behind going into this, going into the right? Because I'm sure that this wasn't just a regular right. I'm sure this was a right where at, when you got done, you realize, oh, shit, we have a hit on our hands. Well, actually, we didn't. It's interesting you would say that. So, oh. so Shane had this idea that he had told me about called Ain't Your Mama Something. Okay. And I said to him please save that song and write that with me. I don't know what the something is, but I know what you're talking about. Like, I love that that saying, ain't your mama's whatever. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I don't, I don't know if it's like, ain't your mama's Saturday night, I don't know. So he and I were writing with Casey, and I remember it was a Monday, and um, his sister and her boyfriend had broken up over the weekend. And so when, when we all were in there getting ready to write, he started talking about how um, his mom didn't like the way his sister was handling the breakup. Like his sister was wanting to stay in bed and eat ice cream and she was wanting her to put on her makeup and go out and, you know, find a new boyfriend. And uh, I said, Shane, maybe that's that ain't your mama's something. And I don't remember how we tripped on Broken Heart, but I remember, um, I remember us thinking it wasn't weird enough, Mama's Broken Heart. And then we wrote it. And and I and I remember loving it. I remember it took the, the we wrote it in a day. And I I really liked it. Like I thought, oh, this is really great. But Casey went home and did a little demo of it with herself playing guitar. I think she did two little she did a guitar and then some hand claps. And she sent it to Shane and I, and it was like, oh, then we knew we had something, you know. Those okay. hand claps did something for us. <laughs> 
so then we knew, you know, we pretty much knew it was it was a special song. And Casey, it was written for Casey. You know, he and he, Shane and Casey were working on Casey's first record. He was co-producing it with her and Luke Laird. And it was sort of at the beginning, it was sort of the cornerstone of what her, what she was going to do. And then Miranda wanted it, and she let Miranda have it. And um, so the rest is history, you know. Yeah, I heard. I I don't know if this is a true story because of course everyone in the industry has different stories about how this song came to be. But I had heard that it was it was uh, at Miranda's wedding. That's true. And she walked up to Casey and told Casey, "By the way, I'm cutting I'm cutting your song." <laughs> Yeah, it was. It was at Miranda's wedding. Um, but you heard that right. Wow. So how would, how did that phone call go when Casey called you and to, or texted you and Shane and said, hey, by the way, Miranda's Miranda told me she's cutting the song. Well, I mean, you know, I remember it being like, uh, it, it took a minute because, you know, that really was the was the song at the time that Casey felt like her record was going to be based around her first mm-hmm. record. And I was at the mindset of, hey, it's Casey's song. If she wants it, you know, she can, she should have it. Um, but Casey ended up deciding she was okay to let it go. And then we, we said, we did another writing retreat, actually where Merry-Go-Round was written. Um, and I think the blessing in Miranda cutting that song, other than she made it a huge hit, was that it, it made it so that happened. I don't know if Merry-Go-Round would have gotten written had Casey been able to record Mama's Broken Heart. And that really, that song really defined Casey and set her up for everything she's done. So I feel like everything happens for a reason. That is very true. That's very true. Wow, I did not know that. Um, so you talk about, you know, about Merry Go Round. Now let's talk about Follow Your Arrow. I didn't write Merry Go Round. I wish I would. Yeah. Yeah, I know you. I know you didn't write that. But let's talk. But uh, let's talk about "Follow Your Arrow." Okay, I just had to say that one of those songs that you have written, and I was upstairs writing it when it was written. Up. I always joke because Luke and I wrote a song called "I Drink to Get Drunk," and I'm always like, <laughs> <laughs> "I was being written." Um, so, "Follow Your Arrow." Interesting story about that. Shane and Casey and I get together. Um, Casey had a, a note that she had written a friend of hers who was going to Europe and it just said kiss lots of boys and smoke lots of joints and follow your arrow and she wanted to write a song around that and I remember part of the reason Casey was a, always a really thought out you know thought in terms of production and, mm-hmm. and thought really visually as well and she wanted to, she said it'd be cool to have arrows in the artwork of my album and so we just wrote that song from that little note. And I honestly, at the time when we wrote it, I thought, cause her record was done or so I thought it was. And I, I just thought, okay, well, well, maybe that'll be on her next record or, you know, I, I didn't think it would be on um, same trailer. And so, um, then I remember it was over Christmas. I went over to Shane's and he and I went to get coffee or something. And he's like, "Oh, I want to play you follow your arrow." And so he played it to me and played it for me, and it sounded amazing. And I was like, "Wow, that's so great!" And he's like, "Well, the good news is it's going to be on the record." And I was blown away, you know, because like I said, I thought her record was done. And then he said, um, "Now the bad news is it's knocking out this other song 
that I was a writer on. It was also with Shane and Casey, so it was knocking it out for them too. And I was like, well, dang, you know, because I thought that other song would be a single. Mm. I thought, well, I guess I won't have a single on Casey's record because all of my other songs were definitely not singles. And once again, what's supposed to happen happens because Follow Your Arrow not only became a single, but it was CMA Song of the Year, and it really did a lot for a lot of people. And I mean, when I tell people I wrote Follow Your Arrow, there it's like I wrote Bridge Over Troubled Water. You know, it's just like yeah, it's, it's such a song that because because it's such a positive message on you know <laughs> telling people, hey, be yourself because it's okay to be yourself, kind of ordeal. Yes. You know? Um, so that's that I see why it became as huge as it was. Mm-hmm. It's a great fucking song. <laughs> so that's rewind. Let's go, let's rewind because before before Mama's Broken Heart came out, uh, and before um Follow Your Arrow came out, you were releasing music on your own as an artist. You Actually, I wasn't. Was it afterwards? It was afterwards. So what's funny, Marcus, is it all kind of happened for me at once. Ah, okay. Well, I was in making my record. Casey called me about Mama's Broken Heart. Wow. It's just nuts how everything, it was like I had worked and worked and worked and worked. And I always called my artist career that I always say, you know, like there are a lot of, there are a lot of songwriters who will say, oh, I'm a failed artist turned songwriter. I felt like I was a failed songwriter turned artist because I had had all these songs that weren't recorded that it really frustrated me. And I has and I just thought, you know, myself as an artist, I thought that wasn't gonna happen. And so I was like, okay, you know, writing songs, doing doing the dream. And um, then I got the opportunity to make a record. And it all sort of made sense to me. Things like hold my hand. I was really frustrated that hold my hand had never been recorded. Well it had been recorded. It was recorded by a girl named Joanna Smith. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if Joanna's project came out. She had a single or two, but I don't know if, if her project came out on Sony. So I was really frustrated that a lot of songs weren't recorded and then I had the opportunity to make my record and it all made sense to me. And while I was making my first record, I started to get a bunch of cuts, like Ben Perry cut, Better Did Two, um, Miranda cut, Mama's Broken Heart. I mean, those were the singles. A lot of other songs got recorded. Reba cut a couple songs of mine. I mean, just it just... And I had had cuts before that, but that was a period of time for me that was really a huge heart. I would call it a harvest time yeah. where I was, where the crops were coming in. We planted a lot of seeds. Because I, I, the first, the first I heard you, your music as an artist was the 12 Strike album. Strikes, yes. Strikes. That was the first I heard. And I listened and I'm like, this is so, it's so artsy and it's so authentic. Which, which leads me to my next question. When you, when you are writing for you and you're writing for a different artist, you're just writing in general. Do you have a different mindset when you go for writing commercial songs? Songs or radio-friendly songs? Do you have? A, is there a different approach to those different types of songs? For me, no. The only thing that ever changes for me is if I'm in the room with another artist, I definitely tailor it to what they want. If I'm there to write for them, then they're the say. They're the final say. Um, otherwise, I'm just trying to write the best song I can that day. Now, there are times when I'm writing with people who are far more commercial-minded than me. I'm not the most commercial writer. Um, and, and when I'm writing with those people, you know, it's 
probably more geared towards the radio just because of their instinct. Um, but but for me, what ends up happening, I never feel like I'm writing for me. Right. If I do that, I, I can really mess myself up. What I have to do is just try to write the best song. And those are the songs that generally I end up recording because I just love the songs. Right. Um, and not because they're, I don't think they're better songs than a more commercial song. I don't, I mean, I don't feel that way, but I do feel like there's never a time where I'm writing for me. I'm just writing songs. And what happens is those songs end up being for me. And a lot of times the songs that end up being for me are a little left of center. The songs that end up being for you, what I what I noticed about your songs, and it's different from the other songs that have been cut and things like that, you have the ability of storytelling. Not many, not a whole lot of writers have that ability, uh, but you have the ability of storytelling. So are, are, are a lot of these stories like, you know, are a lot of those storytellings like, are, is, it, is it just the imagination or is it something that you um, relate to or that you have had happen to you or a friend has told you a story of their life and you turn it into a song kind of ordeal? Almost all of my songs um, or I should say all the ones that end up being good enough to be recorded by me or someone else, there's some grain of truth in them. And especially the story ones, because, you know, the best stories are true stories, I think. You know, like, it's that whole, the truth is stranger than fiction. And there, and a lot of times, um, maybe it's not my story or somebody like in my family story but it might be a co-writer's story or someone in their family you know that's the beauty of co-writing like i wrote today with um, jesse joe dylan who i write with a lot and kimberly kelly and the song we wrote is something that's going on right now in jesse joe's life and sometimes it's easier like it was easy that song was easy for me to write with her because it's not so direct directly me and i'm just sitting there listening to her tell her story and playing piano and saying well, how about this and you know it just comes out but the reason why it's easy is because it's so close that's why i was good so my question my next question because it's easier to it's easier to write someone else's story is it is it harder so it's so that means you're telling me that it's harder to write your own story into a song is that because it's you who's dealing with the, the situation personally and it's just i say music is therapy so it's like is that something like you know a revelation in therapy happens for you that moment happens is that what it is when you when it makes it hard for you to write for your own situation i think it's harder to write your own situation when it's going on i mean i can write about things that happened five years ago. Mm-hmm. Now, five days ago, it's harder because you haven't processed it yet. And so I love to write with somebody who's going through something right now because that's oftentimes the best time to write a song. For me, if I'm going through it right now, though, I need a co-writer because I'm too close to it. Right. Like, I'll get too hung up in the details and miss miss the forest for the trees. So that's really the only reason. I mean, I've written about things that were deeply personal, you know, for me, my grand, losing my grandparents, losing my dad. Those were things I wrote about but i wrote about them somewhat after after the after, after the fact that makes a whole lot of sense because i've had friends who written songs and like you say they they don't write i mean i have a friend who recently just who his dad his dad died i think last year or year before and he didn't write anything about it until i want to say three months ago four months ago like i guess he yeah. took, you know it took the whole year to process that in grief in in order to write that i was gonna say i think it's kind of you mentioned therapy i think it's kind of like therapy and anybody that's gone to therapy for any amount of time knows that if you go every week or every other week that there are times where you think 
man, I just don't have anything today. And then you'll sit down in front of your therapist and you'll cry and talk about something. That's how songwriting is to me. Like something might have happened a year and you'll sit down on a random Tuesday and you'll write a song about it and be like, wow, where did that come from? But that's, that's the process. Wow. That is, wow. Okay. Okay. That is a great analogy of songwriting. (laughs) That's probably the best analogy I've heard in a long time. So, (laughs) so uh, yeah, yeah. Here's, here's, here's a question for you. So you, we, we, we talked about how you, you were getting frustrated with yourselves because no one was picking up these songs that you were writing. No one was saying you were, and that's, and that's obviously part of the game. That's part of the industry. And as we talked about at the beginning of this interview, you have waves of things that happen to you in this industry. So what, what is one song that you have written that has been cut that you wish or you were in hopes that it was good, that it would have been a single? Um, I have a song. I wrote it with Madeline Slate and Shane McAnally, and it's called That's How I'll Remember You. And David Nail recorded it. And that's one of my favorite songs I've ever written. And I really wish that I, I wanted that to be a single really bad. Um, I mean, you want them to all be singles, but that was a song. Yeah, I wanted to hear stadiums of people singing it, you know, just. And just his vocals it, in general. Just, it just is epic to me. Oh, yes. I mean, it was a dream cut for that song. Um, I had another one, too, actually with Trevor Rosen and Shane, who I wrote Better Dig 2 with, called Come Back to Me that Keith Urban recorded. And that was another one. I, I thought it would be a single. It wasn't Keith. I think Keith even did a video for it. I can't remember. I think he some he did something for it, something that made us think it was going to be a single. Um, but yeah, but I, the David Nail, that that's that's how I'll remember you. Like, in fact, I've been talking about that song a lot lately, and it might be something I need to record because it clearly comes it back comes to me. Back. Like, yeah, I know what song you're talking uh, about. I, <laughs> I do, and you, I, I love that song. It was one of those that I knew. Well, I knew. When I had the idea, that was actually my idea. I knew it was great. And so much of it's that, like, do you have the great idea? And when I shared the idea with Shane, much like when he shared Mama's Broken Something, maybe your mama's something with me, he also, he responded to That's How I'll Remember You the same way that I responded to Ain't Your Mama's Something. Uh, and so I knew he was the right person. And then we wrote it with Maddie Slate, who's fantastic. And as we were writing that song, I knew every word of it was great. You know, it was one of those days where you just felt high because you're just like, this is so good. Like, and we were all fighting for the same thing. We're all fighting for it to be just amazing. That's amazing. So when you, here's a question for you. So when you go into these co-writes, um, do you have it where, because you, do you do you guys discuss ahead of time the ideas you're going to have? Or do you go in that room and you toss around the ideas and then whatever you agree on, uh, that's the idea you're going to go with? You know, it kind of goes both ways. Like, for example, today is a great example. Uh, Jesse Joe and Kim and I were writing and Kim sent us ideas this morning. She texted them to us early in the morning. And so I kind of thought that's what we would Right, and I was really paying attention to the ideas she sent, and then Jesse brought up another idea, and it hit me so hard. I said, "Oh, we have to write that idea that Jesse just said." Like 
That to me is what we have to write today. And I rarely feel that way. I'm not somebody who pushes real hard, um, like to have my way, but I just felt what she was saying. I'm like, we've got to write this now, you know? And so it happened both ways. I love that I have relationships with people like Jesse Joe, like Shane, like Scott Stepakoff, that I can text them and say, I have this idea would you marinate on this with me? Um, you know, I feel lucky that I have those relationships. Wow. So what's next? Because we connected we connected from a tweet that I sent out. And Hannah Dasher was the one who told me about the song. I got hooked on the song and just constantly, constantly listened to it. I bullshit you not, this song, I listened to it multiple times. The day that I tweeted you, I, it was just that over and over again. So what's next for you? Because you currently, you currently, you just released, was it? A, a deluxe edition so you're so yeah i just put out a deluxe version of my record your life is a record and i'm just really um i'm in a heavy duty writing phase right now like for myself for others um you know it's so nice to be breaking out of COVID a little bit i spent all last year on zoom and it's a slow process but i'm starting to get back in rooms with people i had my first vaccination i try to stay masked but um you know, I'll probably spend most of this year working on what my next album will be. And then just writing with other people and writing for other projects. And, you know, always my whole thing is to stay inspired. And that's harder than than think. You know, when I talk about writing those songs, like, that's how I'll remember you. Um, that, that was an inspired time. And like when I look at like, oh, the, the block of songs that came out of that, it was like, oh, that was really an inspiring time. There were all those really great songs. But there are other times like that when I, you know, and, and you can't really see them when you're in them. It's just like, oh, boom, 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 boom. I feel like I'm getting into one of those times right now. Like, Jesse Jonah wrote yesterday with Cole Swindell. We're trying to write something for him, and that was great. And then, you know, I mean, I'm writing with somebody every day. I'm going to dig in a little bit more and write by myself some because that's usually where a lot of what I end up doing on my my records comes from. Even if I don't finish those songs by myself, I rarely do. I need to be better about that. But a lot of times I'll start something like, for example, the song Crazy Women. I wrote that song all by myself, but I knew it wasn't right. Like I knew I knew it was a great idea, but I had not executed it well. And so the I don't ever think of that as wasted time. When I went in and wrote it with Jesse Joe and Shane, I said, I wrote this song. I'm not gonna play you any of it because it's not right. But I think we should write it. And I told them it and they loved it. And what I knew, what I learned from writing that by myself and spending all that time um, was I knew what roads not to take when the three of us sat down. Mm -hmm. And that's as important, I think, as knowing what roads to go down. Mm -hmm. Is knowing where not to go. Wow. So, I, you know, this is a lot of me digging in and being creative. And, um, you know, I tried to be as creative as I could in 2020, but it was hard because was such a weird time and I had just put out a record and I mean I still wrote a lot and you know I probably did better than I know but I feel I'm feeling like I'm hitting a stride right now what's the what was your what's your what was your favorite song off that album you know man it depends on the day it depends on the day <laughs> 
<laughs> um, I mean, I love I'll Be the Sad Song a lot. Love that. Um, who You Thought I Was. Yep. I think my favorite vocal I've ever had on any song is Can We Be Strangers. That's that's my favorite. I love that. I really wish that that would be pushed to radio because that there's just no words to describe how phenomenal that song is and how well written that is. Um, I love your song with Brandon Carlisle. I do. Oh, same devil. I love it. Thank I love you. the song, and I love I love the song with Lindsey Buckingham. Thank I you. Absolutely loved it. Thank you. And what's crazy is about that is the Lindsey version was recorded first. Really? A lot of people don't know that. Lindsey heard the demo and he was like, I'd love to cut something. I'd love to do that song. And like, he meant like produce it and me sing it. And so we went in and did it and I loved it, but I knew it wasn't the direction for, for the whole album. And I honestly don't know if Lindsey would have been up for doing a whole album, Right. but you know, I wanted to do something with it. And the label said, there'll be a, there'll be a way we can use it. And then, um, when, uh, when the deluxe album came about, it came back up. And I said, let's mix it and put it on there. And so I'm glad that you feel, the, I'm glad you like it. Uh, yeah, that's crazy. That, I wonder how often that happens when like, when the duet is recorded first, you know, as the original. I, I wonder how often all that happens. How did the Brandy Carlisle same, same, same Devil come up? Okay, so I had written that song with Marla Cannon and Haley Witters, who are fantastic writers. And it was in the mix for my album, but it just didn't fit. You know, and, and, and you know, you, when you hear it and you hear the album, it makes sense why it didn't fit. But um, the when COVID, it wouldn't have happened had it not been for COVID because I would have been on the road. Brandy would have been on the road. And the label said, let's do a deluxe album. Let's cut a few things. And, and I didn't know quite how the deluxe album was going to come together. And so Jay Joyce, who made the record, um, he couldn't do it with, with his schedule. So we started talking about different people and um, Tracy Gershon, who's somebody that I work with, suggested Brandy. And I said, well, yeah, if she wants to do it, I think that'd be great. And so Tracy asked her and she did. And so she was in her place um, in Washington and I was in Nashville and she zoomed in just like this. And myself and the players were in the studio and she was and we recorded it. And then she took the tracks and she played that, um, she played some of the piano and the, um, and then of course did the background vocals. And uh, it was amazing. It was really great to work with her because I've worked with two really great producers in Dave Brainerd on 12 Stories and then Jay Joyce on Big Day and Your Life is a Record. And what what I, what I think great producers, not all great producers, but a lot of great producers are great musicians. And those guys definitely are. And Brandy's a great musician, but her instrument is her voice. And so that was such a bonus for me to have a producer who could sing it to me and say, no, sing it like this. Or do, you know, and like knows the voice in a way that someone like Jay Joyce knows guitars and bass. And Brandy understands vocally what what singers can, can and can't do in a different way. And that was pretty amazing. She's she's a great producer. That is amazing. That sounds like an am amazing, amazing experience for that happening. Wow. So gonna wrap, we're going to wrap up here. We're gonna wrap up here, but I, I want to ask you a question here. My um, two questions here. One, what's your advice for up and coming songwriters in this industry? Well, I mean, my advice. I 
always say this and it's probably sounding trite but but it's true is be you everyone else is taken i know for me i cha- I, I did i got into chasing trends i think all people do because you want to be successful and when you know, I remember Hillary Lindsay, who I now get to write with, who's such a great writer. I remember being told, like, I wish your melodies were more like Hillary Lindsay. And so I would try to write these melodies like Hillary Lindsay. And the truth is, I'm not going to because there's only one Hillary Lindsay, you know, and she's going to write those melodies far better than Brandy Clark's gonna. And Brandy Clark needs to write Brandy Clark melodies. And as soon as I started to figure that out, and it took me a long time, like what you do is great. What you love is great. Just do it the best you can. I really fought my instincts a lot. And once I quit doing that, those all those songs we talked about got written right after that. Wow. In fact, it's a good reminder great reminder for me to say that and tell that story with where I'm at right now is getting like moving into a a heavily creative cycle because I can fight what naturally comes to me and that's all we really have you know and the other piece of advice I would say is to just work hard you know be disciplined and diligent about it and you know that that that's about the best advice I could give. And what would you what what would if you were to stop playing music today and stop you know releasing music? What would you want your legacy to be? Great songs. You know, I've always wanted to write a, a standard. Um, I think about like "Crazy" is my favorite song of all time, and I think long after all of us are gone, that song's going to be playing somewhere, and some girl who's learning how to sing is going to be learning that song. And I, that was that would be what, you know, I'd love to be part of what keeps country music alive because uh, I believe in country music and and country songwriting. I think it's 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 an art. Wow. Well, this has been amazing. I'm glad we got to do this, even with all the technical issues as far as the weather. <laughs> this has been phenomenal. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. I enjoy this. I thank you. I enjoy this, and I love you. I love you as nice as I love you as person. You, you would literally I'm swept off my feet. I'm swept off my feet. Well, I love you too, ladies and gentlemen. Brandy Clark.